welcome to my mommy's podcast. This episode is brought to you by Perfect Keto. I have heard from a lot of you who are trying the keto diet right now, and Perfect Keto has several products that make it so much easier and tastier. They have keto-friendly sports drinks with zero additives, zero carbs, and only high-quality ingredients, and I've gotten so many questions about this. They also have exogenous ketones that raise blood ketone levels up to 1.5 millimoles per liter, so that would be simulating a fast. A lot of people use these exogenous ketones to increase mental performance and energy production and fat burning without the need to do extended fasting. And Perfect Keto really just helps make ketosis available to everyone everywhere all the time without the need to do extended fasting, like I said. You can check out these and all of their other products at perfectketo.com forward slash healthy moms. And if you use the code healthy moms, all uppercase, you can save 20% on any order. This podcast is brought to you by Thrive Market, my online go-to for pantry staples and many of my favorite foods. Thrive Market now carries everything from non-perishables to sustainable and organic meat and seafood. Their Thrive Market brand line of products has everything from diapers to canned tuna and sardines to pantry staples like bulk ingredients, flours, baking soda, nuts, seeds, all of it at lower prices. And many of the foods that they carry are difficult to find locally, at least where I live. And they're easy to source at Thrive. I always stock up on things like pickles, almond milk, spices, sprouted rice and quinoa, coconut aminos, chia seeds, and many other favorite products and keep my pantry stocked. Just for being a Wellness Mama podcast listener, you can get 25% off your first purchase plus a 30-day free membership by going to thrivemarket.com forward slash Katie. That's T-H-R-I-V-E-M-A-R-K-E-T.com forward slash K-A-T-I-E. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and I cannot wait to dive into this episode because we are going to go deep on sleep and heart rate variability and how I'm using something called the Aura Ring to help track my fertility. It's going to be super fascinating. I am here with Harpreet, who is the CEO of Aura Health and the maker of the Aura Ring, which is the sleep and activity tracker that I personally use. Prior to Aura, Harpreet was a portfolio manager and an analyst at a hedge fund for nine years in New York. And like my story, after burning the candle on both ends, he ran into health issues, which led him down the path of looking inward and trying to improve his own health. Also, just a quick note, we're going to talk a lot about the Aura Ring. For anyone who's interested in trying it, it's the one I use. You can use the discount code wellnessmama at AuraRing.com to save $50 on any of their rings. And I have it and I love it. But Harpreet, welcome and thanks for being here. Katie, thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be on. I am so excited to jump in because we are talking about some of my favorite topics. But first of all, I want to hear your personal story because it sounds like a lot like me that you ran into some health issues that led to you basically finding your own answers and trying to delve into health on your own. So can you tell us that part of the story? Yeah. You know, I, I guess uh, graduate, upon graduating college, um, you know, I had a bunch of student debt and I wanted to pay it off. Um, so I remember going to the career center um, in my college and asking, hey, which jobs pay the most? Because um, I have a bunch of debt and I want to pay it off. And uh, well, they said, actually, our you know careers, what we find from our alumni in finance tend to pay the most. And that led me down the path of, honestly, uh, investment banking and then eventually a hedge fund. But, you know, the hours are brutal. I, I got a job. It all worked out. Um, and, you know, was at a great fund for a long time. But 
I would say the continual stress. And for me, I ended up trading um, a lot of stocks overnight, um, working sort of European hours and Japanese hours. Um, and over time, that really just led to a lot of health issues. I think I gained 30 pounds, 40 pounds in my first year of investment banking. And I'm five foot five and I weighed about 140 in college. So 30 pounds to 40 pounds is a lot for me. So that actually, I think, started my quest on the health. And the more and more in time I spent about it, the more and more in time I listened to podcasts, um, you know, podcasts like yours and other people out there in the health community, um, the more inspired I was to l- keep learning and keep changing and improving. And I guess once I started down that road, I started to realize that's really my passion. You know, my student loans had and had uh, been paid a long time ago. And it was sort of, you know, what do I want to focus my life on? And I think um, improving our health is just something that you can keep, um, you know, you keep learning and keep improving on. Absolutely. And I love that for you, it almost started with something that takes a lot of us a long time to get to and that's sleep. Because I feel like it's easy to want to address the really tangible things that are easy to see, like nutrition and exercise. Um, But at least from my own personal experience, I know that sleep is at least as important as both of those put together, if not more so. And it seems like sleep was a big key for you as well. So what started the interest in sleep? Because that's obviously once we start talking about Aura Ring, there's a a bunch of sleep tracking that happens there. But what really um, sparked your interest in that to begin with? Frankly, I... um... My first year out of college when I did investment banking, I think on average I slept about four hours a night, um, which, you know, isn't atypical for that profession, which, by the way, is insane. I mean, if you actually look at the WHO, they now classify uh, shift work as a carcinogen because it's that harmful to your health. Um, But what I started to find out is, you know, I didn't drastically change my diet that much. Um, if anything, I guess I was eating probably less because um, I wasn't as active. But I just found that I actually started getting gray hairs at the age of 22, um, which is just mind-blowing to me. And I started just gaining a ton of weight. And um, the more and more I looked into that, the more and more it sort of led me to sort of sleep. I knew I, I wasn't going to have the time to exercise nor the energy. Um, but I was just wondering, even with sort of like paying attention to my diet, eating sort of whole foods and not eating a lot of junk food – Um, I was gaining, you know, literally it was like almost a pound a week. It was pretty insane. So, uh, I think that's when I started to realize that there's so much, um, you don't understand about your body and your brain, uh, when you sleep. And that, that's sort of what got me fascinated in the beginning. That's awesome. Okay. So let's go deeper on sleep. I think a lot of people just think of sleep in general, like I'm either asleep or I'm awake. But now, especially through wearing the O-ring, I'm much more cognizant of the different types of sleep and the different stages of sleep and all the things that go into a good sleep. So can you start by kind of giving us an overview about the different stages of sleep and what they tell us about our health? Yeah, sure. So I think if you take a step back and sort of look at how sleep staging um, has been defined, it's primarily in two categories, REM and non-REM. So REM is sort of when we dream. Um, I like to think about it uh, this way. It's actually when your prefrontal cortex is turned off. Uh, you know, sort of think about the, the part of your brain that's acting like the instructor that's, uh, you know, putting everything together and telling, you, you know, your body and, and everything else what, you know, what to focus on when. So REM sleep is this fascinating time when actually the chief or, you know, the officer in, the, in, in your army of your body and mind is turned off and, and basically your brain can go wild. So that's when you start dreaming. Um, you know, we turns out most of our memory consolidation actually happens in REM. Um, you know, I would say most of the repair to the brain um, actually happens in REM, though some of that happens in deep as well. Deep sleep, on the other hand, turns out actually when probably most of our body is repaired, 
So for men, um, most of our testosterone is actually released in deep sleep. You know, I think it's for women, there's um, equivalent hormonal, um, you know, changes going on during deep sleep as well. Um, and then the other part that's actually pretty interesting is, um, you know, I would say the brain does clear itself of toxins all during sleep. But actually one thing, um, one recent study pointed out about a year ago is that actually beta amyloids, which is a plaque that's actually linked to the onset of Alzheimer's, that's cleared away during deep sleep as well. But those are, you know, sort of the two main areas of sleep I'd say most people focus on is sort of deep sleep and REM sleep. And, you know, those vary actually with age as well. But um, those are two of the stages along with sort of light sleep, which is basically everything else, and then awake, uh, which we classify. We classify all four of those in the aura rank. Got it. Yeah, it's been fascinating. I'm looking at my app right now and looking at the different stages of sleep. And the part I love because I'm type A is that you actually get a sleep score. So I can kind of tell every day if I slept good or not and what things I can do to improve it. Um, I have not gotten 100 yet. Is it possible to get a 100 sleep score? I have not gotten it yet. (laughs) People ask us that all the time. I think a few people have gotten 100. Uh, It's really, really, really hard though. Um, But we do have a consistent cohort of people hitting in the 90s. Yeah, I was definitely, I hit the 90s. I'm looking at like last night, it was a 95 and got over an hour of deep sleep. And, um, but it's just fascinating to see because you can actually see a visual graph of what happens as you're sleeping. And I've also noticed patterns like on a good night of sleep, my heart resting heart rate's in the 50s and I don't wake up and there's a lot of deep sleep. But if I like, for instance, drink too much wine or go to bed too late, even if I get enough sleep, those things all change. Um, so are there patterns that you guys see in sleep, like in sleep tracking that tend to correlate to lifestyle factors at all? Or um, is it just totally? Okay, so what are some of those factors? (laughs) So um, I think, um, you know, generally speaking, and it's not just from our own data, we see this, but also from, you know, tons and tons of studies that have been sort of proven out there, um, you know, done with full polysomnography or, you know, hooked up um, to your brain EEG test, essentially, that basically deep sleep will happen in sort of the first half of the night. You know, you you do go through stages of sleep. So most people will sort of go from a light sleep. You'll stay in there. Um, you know, the the whole time. Remember, the brain is actually like cleaning itself during sleep. Um, it's something to sort of point out that our our body has a lymphatic system um, that we know. But you know, actually, until recently, um, people didn't think the brain had a lymphatic system. Um, but there was a recent discovery, actually, about I think three years ago. Um, the first study was put out, and and the, you know the the term was actually called a glymphatic system with a G. So your brain goes through these certain stages and certain orders on purpose um, from what we can understand. But most people will go into sort of deep sleep in the first half of the night. Typically, depending on how old you are, you'll get anywhere from call it 30 minutes. Um, But, you know, if you're sort of where I'd imagine most of your audience is in their um, 30s or early 40s, um, you're probably going to get closer to 40 to 50 minutes um, of deep sleep. And that'll happen in the first half of the night. And then the second half of the night, most people go into, um, you know, vary between sort of light and REM. And, you know, sometimes when we wake up and we feel a little bit groggy, that can be because your alarm went off when you were in REM sleep. Um, As far as other factors um, that we see, you know, it's oftentimes, you know, you'll start to learn what your average is of deep sleep. And you'll start to sort of realize, oh, man, if I got 30 minutes of deep sleep, um, you know, you asking yourself exactly what you just did. Um, did I, What happened? What did I do yesterday? Um, what could have changed that? Um, sometimes you'll get no deep sleep. Um, I found certain times when I'm super stressed or um, especially if alcohol is involved. And even, frankly, the type of alcohol can vary, uh, vary the effects, too. I might have very low or very little deep sleep. Um, sometimes after extremely hard workouts, um, those days, I'll find that actually my deep sleep increases. REM for me, it's been harder to nail. 
I do tend to notice actually that, you know, periods that I have like really high mental activity, a lot of like focusing going on, um, that I tend to get more REM sleep, which, you know, I, I don't think there's been, um, studies on this proven yet, but one of the theories is, is our, our brain's actually pretty smart. Um, our brain will recognize actually how much of the different stages we need depending on what's going on in our life. I do think it'd be pretty cool to get some studies to show that maybe certain exercises or certain types of strenuous activity actually helps promote deep sleep. I think that's been done, um, but I haven't seen any good ones lately. And then vice versa for REM. Um, we do know that most of our memory recall um, is happening in REM. Um, actually, one of the cool things in REM is your brain will actually speed up certain memories throughout the day by up to 3x. Um, so if you're trying to learn a new task or trying to memorize something, your brain actually consolidates that during the REM process and will actually, you're, it's, it's working almost three times faster than, than sort of during the day. That is fascinating. And for like parents listening, something important to know for our kids is they're studying and in school, like how, and I know just from personal experience, I can look back and think how much better I did at different times in school if I was sleeping enough and wasn't stressed. Um, that makes total sense. Is there any science about how much of each of these types of sleep we need in a kind of optimal environment? There is. Yeah. Um, there's actually a bunch of studies out there that have sort of shown the norms. I don't remember all the data off the top of my head, but basically when you're sort of under 20, you know, your body's still growing quite a bit. So you tend to get sort of the most deep sleep. Um, I mean, I think generally it's like you'll be getting a little bit over an hour as high as two hours under the age of 20. Um, and, you know, deep sleep is normally, I guess, how we feel a lot the next day in terms of how refreshed we feel. It tends to correlate with that. So I think, you know, the term sleep like a baby um, probably comes from that a little bit. You're probably getting a ton of deep sleep. REM sleep, um, you know, I would say under the age of 20, I think the data is probably around, you know, a little bit more than a third of your night. You know, so if you think about sort of, you know, probably a little bit more than two hours, maybe up to three hours. Um, and then both those go down with age. That's the interesting thing. So we do know as we age that actually our, our you know, sleep cycles tend to get quite affected. Um, both REM and deep sleep tend to go down. I think by the time you're 60, um, most people are getting on average less than 30 minutes of deep sleep. So I, I know it tends to progress um, as you age. I don't have all the data on in front of me. Um, but I'm sure we can find some um, some studies and post uh, links in the show notes. Awesome. Yeah, we'll make sure to include those. Are there re reliable ways that you guys have seen in, I'm assuming you have a decent amount of data now with everybody tracking their sleep. Are there ways that are reliable to um, it, like basically increase REM sleep or increase deep sleep that seem to work across all segments of the population? Or is that more of a personalized thing? Um, I, I definitely think there's some personalized things that end up happening. Um, but yeah, we definitely have some data, we think. And frankly, we're trying to share, going to start sharing a lot of this data, you know, on our social and on our blog going forward about things we do find. I would say one of the most important things is actually consistency of sleep time, uh, like what time you go to bed every night and wake time, um, sort of what time you wake up and you first get exposed to light. That tends to actually impact um, the quality of our sleep quite a bit. Uh, not just the duration. I think it actually gets back to the principles of circadian rhythms. So just about actually a year ago, uh, finally a Nobel Prize was awarded in this, but our body actually operates in our mind around something called our circadian clock. So it's actually, you know, sort of what governs, you know, what hormones are released when, um, you know, when you should fall asleep, when you should wake up. And it turns out that this actually impacts most of the cells in our body. 
So, you know, anything that sort of helps set a consistent time helps keep that clock in check. Um, so just falling asleep at the same time. And we actually are starting to give recommendations for people uh, when that optimal time is for them uh, because everyone has a different time for that. So we're starting to give some of that information in the app. I think one of the other consistent things we find, frankly, is um, meal timing and alcohol. So oftentimes, actually, we eat pretty close now in today's society, really close to bedtime. From everything we've seen, that's probably not healthy for us. Um, actually, there was a fascinating work being done by um, Sachin Panda out of the Salk Institute. And um, I think one of the things that they found actually is um, your glucose response um, to certain types of food will vary upon the time of day. And basically what they showed is that after sundown, um, our body responds to sugar like much, much worse. And, and part of that is actually thought that um, our pancreas, um, which helps regulate that, um, you know, our insulin and our, you know, assuming basically helping um, control, um, control our glucose levels in our body basically starts to shut down once melatonin is released in the body. So I would say meal timing um, from what we're seeing in our data and what we're finding from research has a huge, huge impact. Um, we generally recommend you shouldn't go to bed too full or too hungry. Um, in reality, this, this ends up meaning people should probably finish dinner three hours. Um, and I think from some of our data, we've even seen four hours helps quite a bit. I know there's a recent study done in intermittent fasting um, and the timing of um, the window. And what they found is a cohort that actually finished their meals before five ended up doing much better in sort of all metabolic function uh, than the cohort that ended up finishing their meals at nine. So I think we're going to find more and more uh, research coming back to sort of what our grandparents used to say of, you know, uh, eating, eating early and going to bed early helps quite a bit. The other one is alcohol. Um, I think timing of alcohol and what types of alcohol we know has a big impact. So I think uh, we have found from our data people react differently uh, to different types of spirits and beverages. So that's pretty interesting. And then outside of that, I would say it's uh, getting enough light exposure. We're in a society today where we don't get um, the amount of light that we used to. Um, so most time, you know, if you think sort of back prehistoric, you know, historically, we were not, we didn't have light bulbs. We were sort of waking and going to bed with the sun and um, getting that light exposure in the morning actually helps jumpstart that circadian clock again and sets that schedule every day. So in today's society, um, when you're sort of overblown by all types of light, um, including blue light um, at night, which disturbs our sleep and melatonin release, um, it ends up having a huge impact on, on how we sleep. I think you're so right. And I'm hoping that that's going to be a new wave of research that we're going to start to understand. I think it's easy to ignore light because we don't feel the immediate effects like we do when we eat food that makes us feel bad. But I really do think this is going to be vital to understanding and improving health in the next 20 years. I know, like, especially now that I can track it, it's fascinating to see if I do stay up late and watch a movie and it's got blue light, I don't sleep as well. And when I do things better and I get bright light in the morning and keep low light at night, I sleep better. Um, it's just fascinating to actually start to be able to see that data that I know how based on I feel. Um, and as far as that sense, my personal sleep tips, I know for sure that when I, for instance, wear blue light blocking glasses or just don't have bright lights on at all at night in our house. And when I have blackout curtains in our room, I sleep so much better. Um, is there any relation of temperature and sleep that you have noticed? So I've been sleeping on something called a chili pad for a couple of years, and I definitely feel like I sleep better, but I'm curious if there's a temperature component to sleep that's been studied at all. There definitely has been. Um, and it, it, that's actually another good one to point out. Sorry, I didn't mention that before. But yes, uh, temperature totally um, helps how we sleep. 
so again, if you think sort of historically, um, when we're men and, you know, women were sleeping outside, um, the earth actually cools at night, right? And same thing, it heats up during the day. And so it turns out that our bodies probably have adopted um, to recognizing that cooling as a sign of, you know, when to have certain types of or when to sleep and honestly, probably responsible for releasing certain hormones during when we sleep. Um, so yeah, what we've seen from our data, and frankly, I love the chili pad too, I use it. Um, a lot of our team does as well. And uh, yeah, we have found that it actually makes a huge impact. Um, we will be gathering some more data on that and hoping to release it sort of um, in, in one of our blog posts or on social going forward. And we're, I'm actually really excited. We're going to be doing a study um, in the fall of win- or winter this year, along with um, two professors um, at universities who I can't mention yet, um, where we'll, we will be capturing data on hunter-gatherers in Africa um, with the ore ring, uh, because, you know, some of them are still sleeping outside, um, you know, or, you know, close to the ground. Um, and we know that actually has a huge impact, um, on the quality of sleep. So yeah, temperature control, you know, generally the cooler, the better, um, I would say 65 to 67 degrees is what we've sort of seen as like an optimal temperature. Um, and, you know, I think warmer than that, again, some people are different. Some people actually do do better. Uh, and a little bit of a warmer temperature, but that is um, something we show in the aura ring. Um, and you can start to correlate that and experiment with sort of lower temperatures and see if that helps actually improve your sleep. Very cool. I cannot wait to see that data on the hunter-gatherer tribes. And before we go any further, because I want to get a little deep on things like HRV and fertility tracking. First, I'd love for you to explain to anyone who's not familiar with it, how the aura ring works and what it's tracking. Because um, I feel like there's a lot of fitness trackers out there that track your movement or your number of steps. And to me, this was a completely revolutionary new way to track things. And I was shocked how much I ended up using it and how much I've integrated it in my daily life. But can you kind of give us the broad level of everything it tracks? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I'll, I'll take a step back even further than that. Our view is we wanted to focus on sleep over some of the activity um, metrics um, that wearables have sort of been known to do um, is because sleep impacts how you feel every day. And honestly, if you look at the population stats out there, 99.9% of the population sleeps every night, but only about 15% of the population workouts, you know, w- works out every day. Um, so we just thought it's sort of a bigger thing that ends up impacting everyone. Um, so it's something that we wanted to focus on as a company. We actually chose the ring form factor for two reasons. Um, you know, I would say the first reason we focused on it is because um, of the signal strength of your pulse. So turns out and every hospital sort of uses this for tracking your heart rate and your SpO2 as well. But the pulse from your fingers, if you look at sort of the inside of your hands on your palms, um, is much, much stronger uh, than the pulse from sort of your wrist uh, where your Fitbit or your watch might sit. Some of the studies have shown that it's actually up to uh, 50 times, if not 100 times stronger. Um, so that's one of the reasons we focused on sort of the ring form factor um, versus a wrist form factor or some of the other options out there. I think the second thing we found is that it's really, really comfortable. Um, most people don't like sleeping with watches. Um, you know, we actually chose titanium uh, for our Gen 2 ring uh, to make the ring as lightweight as possible. So it didn't really disturb anyone when they slept. Um, and we actually also chose infrared lights um, instead of sort of green uh, green LEDs on some of the sensors. Um, and, and the main reason is so that doesn't disturb your sleep. Um, and, you know, all the evidence I would say on infrared light has been shown that it's proven to be healthy for the body, not not damaging. In terms of what we track, well, we track a bunch of different stuff. So um, we track your heart rate. Um, we, tra- we track every single beat throughout the whole night. 
um, and we're sampling that heart rate at 250 hertz or 250 times a second. Um, that ends up being 10 to 20x more frequent than, let's say, your average wrist-based wearable, and I'm not going to name names. So we track every single heartbeat and your heart rate variability or the very variability between each of those beats throughout the whole night. From that data, we also derive respiration. Um, so that's another metric we track. Um, we have three temperature sensors inside the aura ring. So, you know, we look at changes in sort of your skin temperature, um, which funny enough from the finger, uh, tends to correlate extremely well with your core temp. Um, so if you think about it, if you're hot or cold at night, generally you stick your feet out of the blanket, um, and, uh, you know, same with your hands. And so, you know, our extremities of our bodies, um, help thermoregulate our core. So we do see changes in core extremely well. And then, you know, as far as during the day, um, things we track, we, we do track sort of steps and, you know, all, all the other things that other wearables track as well. Yeah, it's been fascinating to see. And another thing I love is the fact that it can go into airplane mode, because that was one concern I had with a lot of the wearables is they have, they're constantly Bluetooth enabled. And so you've got Bluetooth on you all the time, even if you're sleeping. And um, EMFs are certainly a controversial topic, but it's one of those things that we, I feel like we don't have all the research on yet. And at least during sleep, it's something I tried to avoid. So I love that that's an option. Um, That's, you're the only one I found that has that ability. And I know a lot of health leaders are turning to Oura Ring for that reason, and also because of all the cool sleep data. But you mentioned HRV, or heart rate variability, a little bit. And I want to really delve into this. So for anyone not familiar, can you explain this concept of what heart rate variability is and why it's important? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a new metric um, that people are starting to track that's getting a lot of um, attention, and and I think it deserves it. So heart rate variability is actually the variation of each heartbeat. So if you Think about it. If we're sitting here and talking, you know, pretty relaxed, our heartbeats might be at, you know, 60 beats per minute or 70 beats per minute. It turns out, though, um, every single heartbeat within that minute is sort of happening at a different speed. So, you know, if we get really excited, maybe our heartbeats might increase for a few seconds and they're at 80 beats a minute or 90 beats a minute. And vice versa, if we're uh, slowing down and almost falling asleep, it might actually be slower. Um, so it turns out that this beat to beat change in your heartbeat um, is, you know, it's been coined sort of heart rate variability. Uh, I have a little bit of a math background, so I like to sort of think about it as a derivative of your heart rate. So it, it ends up sort of that we found that it actually this um, this metrics is, correlates extremely well with stress, um, overall, overall stress and your autonomic nervous system or your ANS. So. Yeah, I think, you know, there's been a lot of studies out there sort of indicating periods of constant stress or chronic disease um, actually cause very low heart rate variability numbers. Um, and when people are sort of in a flow state, they're extremely healthy, um, they have a lot of energy, uh, they tend to be well rested, um, your heart rate variability turns out to be really high. So it's a little counterintuitive because a uh, high HRV is really good and a low HRV tends not to be so great. But yeah, it's something that we track, um, and I, I would sort of argue that you know the benefit of the Aura Ring, it's the easiest way to track that. Um, I think other devices that people were sort of using before uh, tend to be sort of chest straps, and no one wants to wear a chest strap um, to bed the whole night, um, or frankly, even during the day, they're not that comfortable. And so um, one of the things we focused on was being able to track HRV, um, and, it, and frankly, we're still learning as a company because no one's really ever gathered that much HRV data um, for, you know, seven to eight hours every night on, on a large population. So, you know, we're finding new things from it all the time. Um, we're seeing people that 
when they have sort of, you know, athletic events and they're training really well and resting really well, that their HRV tends to go up. Um, if they're overtraining, their HRV tends to be pretty low. Um, we've had some user stories. Some people reach out to us and say, hey, it's crazy. I had something traumatic happen to me, um, either an accident or the family or, you know, something really stressful at work um, that's happening. And they'll see clear changes in their HRV. Um, and a lot of people are using it now uh, in the athletic world as a metric to train by. So there has been correlations with HRV and physical performance from some of the new research out there. And so um, a lot of people actually, I would say, in the endurance athlete world and um, sort of, you know, more on the power side, the um, you know, Olympic level lifting side are using HRV as a metric um, to help to help actually look at and train according with, um, you know, sort of seeing that data. Um, and there's even some sort of new research being done on breathing and meditation and the impact on HRV. Um, and that's something that we hope to bring soon in sort of a meditation mode uh, within the app. Very cool. So is there is there like a good metric or aim for someone who's tracking HRV or just wants to start tracking it that is a great, just a, an average that you're aiming for to be, to know that that's in a good range? You said high is better, uh, which is unlike most health metrics, but is there a number that's a good number or does it really depend on the person? So I think it really depends on the person. Um, you know, one of the things that we're wary of as, as a company is trying to classify people. I like to sort of think about it like a yoga class or going to the gym for the first time. You know, the goal is just to get better, right? And so it doesn't matter who you are and where you start. Um, I think from like an overall just what's interesting and cool to know, um, what we've seen is some of the pro athletes we have, um, you know, we have a few cyclists in the Tour de France and, you know, some NFL athletes wearing the aura ring. Um, it's pretty amazing. We'll see HRV numbers as high as 150. And just to let people know, like the HRV metric we use, there's there's two different ways sort of used it. Or, or many different ways used out there, but um, we use sort of a, a time domain um, metric um, that we calculate every five minutes, um, and it's called RMSSD. Uh, it ends up being a mathematical formula, which is like uh, stands for the root mean squared of successive differences. Um, I'm not going to get in, into the math, but in, in, in that case, the the unit is milliseconds. So you know, if you want to think about it as a way of sort of 100 to 150, that would be how much. Of, you know, average variability you have between beats, it ends up being pretty high. You know, I think on some of the chronic, um, you know, on the chronic illness side, on some some people when they have extreme stress, we'll see HRV numbers as low as 10. Um, but again, it's one of these things that we're finding changes with age. So we definitely have seen from a younger audience that the HRVs will be sort of in the 70s, you know, to 80s, maybe as high as 90s, uh, under the age of 20. Um, but I think um, as you age, as people start getting in their 40s, um, it tends to actually drop quite dramatically. Um, so, you know, I would say 40s and above, we're seeing HRV averages sort of in the 40 millisecond to maybe 50 millisecond range. So, you know, I, again, everyone's going to come in at a different level. Um, but, you know, if you're if you're below 10, um, that's something probably to be aware of. If you have some chronic health issues uh, going on, I wouldn't be surprised if it's sort of on average in 20. Um, you know, and that can be even chronic issues in the past. And then I think, you know, when we see sort of either really, you know, 1% of 1% is at the high end, we'll see numbers sort of as high as 100 and above. Wow. So definitely a big range. And from what you're saying, things like deep sleep and physical exercise, um, I would guess like things that reduce inflammation, those can all impact your HRV and improve that number. Totally. Yeah. Um, actually one of the things that we're finding and 
I think there's more and more research starting to go into this, so it should be cool to pay attention to over the next few years, that certain types of training um, impact HRV differently. So generally, when we found, uh, we found that bouts of intense activity um, immediately that night, you actually tend to have lower activity, uh, or sorry, lower HRV scores. And so if you think about this, your body just went through a stressful event, right? Um, it's probably going to help, you know, take some time to recuperate. But normally two to three days later, actually your HRV will be sort of higher than your baseline because uh, your body's super compensating, right? It's trying to heal itself and come back just like Wolverine does. So we'll tend to see that with really intense training. Um, one of the interesting things, though, is that um, light intensity, like almost like a mild bike ride, um, you know, something that gets your heart rate up a bit but not too much, um, even some low like intensity interval work, um, we've seen actually pretty pretty impressively uh, increases in HRV the next day uh, when some people tend to do sort of lighter work um, along with sort of some, you know, things like stretching, you know, or even getting massages. So it's, it's pretty interesting to see that, that actually it's just important to have those light days of activity as it is those heavy days of activity as well. And that those light days can actually help you um, help accelerate your recovery um, from physical, you know, physical performance. And I can't wait to see the data from the traditional like hunter-gatherer tribes too, because that seems to be a very much more in line with most likely what their activity level could look like with lots of low-level movement moving around all the time and then burst of intensity when they needed to. Um, so it'll be fascinating to see if they have great numbers, which I would probably expect. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. It's going to be fascinating data to collect. It's, um, you know, what's really interesting about all of this data is I think it just is causing us to finally look inward a bit more. You know, one of the things I always try to think about is the average person now, they touch their cell phone 150 times a day. Um, so if you think about that, if we're awake for 18 or 17 hours, that ends up being 10 times roughly an hour. Um, so I think it's, you know, when we're so busy in today's modern society, so much more, you know, being connected all the time that, you know, we sort of forget to ask ourselves how we feel or what's going on with our bodies and minds. And, you know, I think that hunter-gatherer society clearly benefits from that. So I wouldn't be surprised, um, you know, to see much higher HRV numbers with them, but it'll be super interesting to see that data. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. I'm also curious because I, I, in the past I've done like extended water fasting just for the autophagy and the the different benefits for the body, but typically sleep is suffers a little bit when you're fasting. So I'm really curious to see the next time I do a fast what the ring reports as far as if my how my sleep changes and HRV and how much how long it takes to recover. Uh, do you guys have any data on that? We don't. We haven't done like organized studies on that yet, but it, it, that's actually one of the things that we're thinking about starting is like sort of challenges to our user base of, you know, people who are willing to help us collect some of this data. I mean, one of the things I think, you know, Rob Wolf talks about this too, is what he's found is uh, when, you know, going in a ketogenic diet, um, oftentimes that HRV and sleep will be impacted um, negatively at first before sort of your body adapts, right? Um, so it, I think it's going to be cool to sort of understand how our body reacts during these sort of extreme periods of change uh, when we're trying something new, um, especially those that are related with longer-term health benefits. So it is something that we're cognizant and we want to start collecting. And frankly, we're going to turn to our power users, people like you, to start collecting some of this data and organizing it so we can share it with everyone. That's awesome. And now I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about something that's going to, I think, be really helpful for the women listening, which is fertility tracking. Because this is something I've been tracking for I think like 13 years now, um, just because I feel like it's a very helpful metric for health. And unlike men, women's hormones do change on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis. And so you kind of get a lot of data 
about your health by tracking that. Um, but I want to talk about it specifically in relation to the aura ring. So anyone who's not familiar with it, um, there's multiple ways you can track your fertility. It can be through symptoms and how your body's changing at different times during the month. It can be um, even this your saliva and different pH in your body changes different times of the month. But one of the more reliable ones is basal body temperature. So I'd love if you could talk from the tracking side about how the aura ring can relate to tracking your fertility and what kind of data you're getting. Yeah, we um, actually posted a pretty thorough post on this. So I'm going to um, happy to share that um, in the show notes as well, um, where, frankly, our chief scientist and another person on our on our scientific staff uh, went through and actually documented it. But you're totally right. You know, I think when we look at sort of the menstrual cycle phases, um, you know, there, there tends to be sort of two phases we tend to look at. So I think sort of the follicular phase or FH and the luteal phase um, and LH. So uh, what we sort of lay out on the blog um, and, and, you know, is that we know that different hormones are released at different times through these phases and that those phases actually, and you know, when estrogen is released and progesterone is released, um, end up having sort of different changes in temperature. And sort of what we see when we transition, when women transition um, from sort of the follicular phase to the luteal phase is that body temperature tends to increase um, and increase about 1.3 degrees, um, you know, centigrade or Fahrenheit actually. So, we, we actually go through that change, um, and uh, you can track it in your Oura Ring data, which is really cool to see. Um, and then some of the other data that you can start to track, and we start to see correlations from, is actually resting heart rate tends to change as well during you know different, different parts of the phase of, of sort of the menstrual cycle phase, and also actually heart rate variability. And more and more research is coming out there that it's sort of a combination of these three things, um, resting heart rate basal body temperature, and actually heart rate variability can help sort of really help people triangulate when a change is happening uh, and, and, you know, sort of when, um, when those different hormones are being released and as, as they go through the menstrual cycle every month. I'm so fascinated by that because I've been familiar with the temperature connection for a long time, and I love that now I don't have to track that um, with a separate thermometer. So it's already built into the data. But the HRV side, I feel like that's a very a much newer side of fertility tracking that most people aren't even aware of yet, and it's so fascinating to actually see those patterns. Um, I really was blown away by how reliable that seems to actually be. And so I know for me, I've gone from years ago tracking all this on paper, and it was very inefficient to now between the Aura Ring and some apps. I feel like I have a really, really thorough grasp of that. And it's great for women, I can say from the women's side, to be able to look at it and say like, oh, okay, well, that would be why I'm feeling hormonal today. Or that's why I feel like I need extra sleep today, because you know what your hormones are doing ahead of time. And also you can then support your body when you know you are going to need extra nutrition or extra calories or extra rest. You can already build that in and plan on it. Um, do you guys, so basically inside the data in Orbring, I wish I could show it to you guys while you're listening, but I'll put some pictures in the show notes. Um, you can literally just track your patterns and trends of all of these things we've talked about. So you can look at your trend of HRV um, throughout your monthly cycle and see it change. And you can look at your temperature and how much it changes. And it really is just drastic to see that. So it's really cool. Um, do you have any tips for someone who's maybe new at this on the best ways to start integrating the data they would have from something like the Aura Ring with fertility tracking? Yeah, this one's hard for me to speak about as a guy. So, uh, cause I don't have firsthand experience looking at my own data on this, you know, and so it is something I wish, um, I could speak more to. I do think, um, when you start using the ring, um, you'll start to see, uh, you know, the most, the easiest place probably to check it is in the trends section of the app. And you can sort of, uh, if you go to uh, the readiness section within trends, you can see sort of your, your body temperature and you can look at a, 
a change um, daily or sort of, um, you know, weekly as well and start to look at some of those trends. And when you start to look at the data after you collect a month or two, it'll start to become more obvious of when those changes are happening. Frankly, I think the research in this category is still ongoing. Um, I do think also the ways that we've even tracked this historically as a society have been pretty crude. Um, I know like, you know, some of the top apps out there um, that people use, you know, uh, whether it's Flow, um, I think Glow and Clue are two other popular ones as well that, you know, people sort of um, they'll ask women to wake up every morning and I think at the same time check their temperature with a the thermometer. Um, and if you just think about that, it's sort of a big pain and there tends to be fluctuations sort of with temperature in your room to some degree as well. So that can help throw it off and it makes it hard to no one wants to sit there and write down sort of every day if that number is changing. So, you know, I think being able to track that data you know, with sort of an average that we'll get throughout the whole night from your temperature change ends up being a more accurate way to do it. And actually also, especially on the finger, um, you know, I think, like I sort of mentioned, when your body tries to cool itself you know, or, or honestly heat itself, you know, your, your extremities tend to change temperature first. Um, so what we found from data that we've collected is that ends up being sort of a better place to collect data from than the wrist. But I think we're going to continue to collect more and more data um, we probably will at some point actually try to work with some of the other third-party apps out there to help integrate. So, you know, you could use all the functionality of, let's say, those top menstrual cycle apps that I mentioned and automatically have sort of your aura data ingest in there. And so uh, I'd be curious to hear sort of which apps your 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 audience likes the most because, um, you know, I think, frankly, we're going to want to partner with all of them. That would be amazing to be able to see them all together. Um, it's obviously so much more amazing now just having them all in an app versus handwritten, but I know I use the flow one and clue pretty often. And I also have, I think life on my phone. And those seem to be the three that I hear the most from from other people as well. Um, But that would be amazing to be able to see those line up. And then such a great point on the temperature thing too, because even with me and I've been tracking my cycle for that many years, that was the part that I always had the most trouble actually consistently doing because of that. Because if you get up to go to the bathroom and forget to do it first, if you accidentally drink water and forget to take your temperature first, it kind of messes up your reading. And then you kind of don't have reliable data for the whole month. So at least with the ring, you kind of, you can't really forget. As long as you're wearing the ring, it just does it automatically, which has been super helpful. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the benefits of wearables um, is that collecting that data actually all throughout the night um, ends up being sort of a more accurate way to measure an average you know, than just collecting at a single point in the morning. Um, as you sort of mentioned, like actually um, temperature will change, right, at any given time throughout the day, right? But even with your body, like if you have to use the bathroom, if you're more stressed than not, like temperature could be changing. Um, and so just looking at a single point in time isn't as accurate um, as gathering that temperature data sort of, you know, all throughout the day and night. So I do think it's one of those things that like longitudinally, Um, We're going to start to learn more and more things about data that we find from our users and um, from studies that we'll conduct um, than just sort of the old way of just checking your temperature once, you know, once every day in the morning at a certain period of time. I mean, the other useful application, too, that we see this for is, frankly, when people are getting sick. You know, I haven't been sick, you know, knock on wood, um, for like three or four years. And I finally actually got a cold about two weeks ago. And it was really cool for me to be able to see that data happening. Um, you know, I felt like I was getting sort of, you know, a little bit of a scratchy throat. And I sat next to someone on the plane from New York to San Francisco who was just sneezing the whole time. So I feel like that's where I picked it up. But um, as soon as I saw my temperature increase a little bit, 
I totally overdosed on vitamin C and zinc and a bunch of, you know, a bunch of ginger and lemon honey tea. And, you know, I definitely think that it helped me get ahead of that as well. I actually think temperature is going to be one of the most fascinating things um, that, that we, you know, we start to collect data on. And we also know temperature has a lot to do, um, you know, with changes in the thyroid. So I know some people that have um, pretty extreme thyroid issues, um, one of the metrics that doctors will often ask them to look at when they're changing their temperature uh, or when they're changing their dosage of thyroid is, is their temperature. So I think, you know, that's like another use case that we want to look into. Um, but there's, there's so many cool things that we're starting to learn from, you know, data that you're collecting, that we're collecting from devices like Aura and, and other things out there as well. Yeah, and on the extreme ends, we have some cool data about extreme heat and extreme cold and heat shock proteins and the various ways that affects the body. But um, even like you said, just small changes in temperature and how drastically they can impact our health. On a selfish level, I'm curious to ask that about temperature is um, what temperature can I wear the Aura Ring in? Like I've always taken it off. I was in like really hot water, really cold water, just because I didn't know if it was going to be able to handle that. Um, But can it be worn in those cases as well? Yeah, I totally can. Um, you know, we're a Finnish company, so there's a huge sauna culture. And oftentimes, um, like if you're out nearby a river, uh, people jump from sort of the sauna into um, right into the river. And, and even during the winter when there's like ice over it, which is which is sort of nuts. Um, so, yeah, we you can definitely use this in all types of temperature. So, you know, I, I was in a sauna the other day that was almost um, almost like 190, 180 degrees. Um, it was really hot and it's it's totally fine. So I think some people might be more sensitive to the heat um, and you might feel the metal heating up a little bit, uh, the titanium. So just be careful on the lookout for that. But, you know, for the most part, yeah, I would say most of our team does wear it in in the extreme uh, weather conditions. Good to know. I'll keep it on then. Will there ever be tracking within the app that you can foresee that will take into account the like extreme temperature changes and see how those impact sleep? Or would that just be something to pay attention to as a user? Like for instance, knowing if I'm going to be in the sauna and the cold tub back and forth and then seeing what it does to my sleep. I, um, it's definitely something we're thinking about doing because exactly as you said, just uh, being able to help people correlate that and, and honestly do one of the largest sauna studies out there would be pretty cool. But no, that, that is something we're looking to enabling during the day. I mean, it's it's fascinating, honestly, the, the temperature data you can collect from temperature, even if you think about after you exercise, um, your body temperature might stay elevated for longer. Maybe that's indicative of, you know, you worked out really hard or too hard. Um, and frankly, even things that we found from certain types of food and just meals, you, you know, people used to, they call it the meat sweats. Um, so I think the more and more data that we can start to share with our users as we start to find some of these correlations, um, you know, on things that'll be helpful for people that, you know, we'll, we'll look to do that. So, um, but yeah, I think um, we're going to start creating these challenges in our user base uh, and, and maybe, you know, yourself, Katie, and some people in your community uh, might be some of the first people that we ask to help us collect data on sort of a sauna challenge. I'm in. I will definitely do a sauna challenge. Yeah. Are, are there plans to eventually integrate as well with like a food tracking app or to be able to see changes like, oh, like notice a pattern of you ate this food multiple times and your sleep was affected every time you ate it. I know that'd be a little bit more complicated. No, um, honestly, these are all the things that we have sort of in our roadmap um, that we're all looking to do. Um, We definitely know there's correlations um, between certain foods, um, when you eat them and then how your body reacts. I think there's even been some good work out there with sort of um, correlations between heart rate variability and fasting glucose levels. There's a gentleman out, out of the UK, Alessandro Ferretti. He's put some good information together um, on YouTube on this. And frankly, I um, when I got a continuous glucose monitor, 
I was actually comparing, uh, I was trying to do, uh, I mean, this is real citizen science. I don't recommend this, but I was actually trying to see, um, myself if I could see big changes in HRV, um, along with glucose. So for a period of two weeks, I sort of let myself go wild and experiment, but, um, I was doing things like eating dessert, you know, pretty late right before dinner or sorry, right before going to sleep and saw immediate changes in my, uh, continuous, uh, in my CGM from the data I was getting there alongside um, changes in my HRV from data I was getting in the order ring. So um, I do think we want to start integrating with more and more partners. So, you know, we're all ears and trying to talk to as many people as we can, frankly, um, and eventually making this data um, more taggable and more accessible to our users. Um, uh, we definitely think that um, just collecting data is going to help people learn, uh, you know, from each other. So we do want to enable sort of this uh, correlations um, and note tagging um, within the app. So we can help people sort of find correlations, you know, whether they ate a late dinner or ate dessert, you know, or had an early dinner and see being making it easier to sort of um, spot the correlations and trends that that end up changing with that. So um, we will be releasing some of that, I would say, um, in the fall and in the winter in the app. That's great news. This episode is brought to you by Perfect Keto. I have heard from a lot of you who are trying the keto diet right now, and Perfect Keto has several products that make it so much easier and tastier. They have keto-friendly sports drinks with zero additives, zero carbs, and only high-quality ingredients, and I've gotten so many questions about this. They also have exogenous ketones that raise blood ketone levels up to 1.5 millimoles per liter, so that would be simulating a fast. A lot of people use these exogenous ketones to increase mental performance and energy production and fat burning without the need to do extended fasting. And Perfect Keto really just helps make ketosis available to everyone, everywhere, all the time without the need to do extended fasting, like I said. You can check out these and all of their other products at perfectketo.com forward slash healthy moms. And if you use the code healthy moms, all uppercase, you can save 20% on any order. This podcast is brought to you by Thrive Market, my online go-to for pantry staples and many of my favorite foods. Thrive Market now carries everything from non-perishables to sustainable and organic meat and seafood. Their Thrive Market brand line of products has everything from diapers to canned tuna and sardines to pantry staples like bulk ingredients, flours, baking soda, nuts, seeds, all of it at lower prices. And many of the foods that they carry are difficult to find locally, at least where I live, and they're easy to source at Thrive. I always stock up on things like pickles, almond milk, spices, sprouted rice and quinoa, coconut aminos, chia seeds, and many other favorite products and keep my pantry stocked. Just for being a Wellness Mama podcast listener, you can get 25% off your first purchase plus a 30-day free membership by going to thrivemarket.com forward slash Katie. That's T-H-R-I-V-E. M-A-R-K-E-T.com forward slash K-A-T-I-E. I feel like the more research I read lately too, the more I'm convinced that the future of health for all of us is very personalized and very much varied. And um, based on so many inputs, it's like 
for so long, it was all these different dietary dogmas. And now we can kind of look at it and go, maybe we were all right. Or maybe all of these things have their time and their place. But the key is to be able to see your own data and how they're impacting you personally, because that varies so much from person to person. And I think things like the aura ring and, and just having this wider ability to track data on an instant basis versus having to get labs or having to go see a doctor, that that's really going to, over the long term, help so many of us take our health back into our own hands and to be able to make changes small changes day to day versus having to make massive health changes when we get a health problem later. So it's so cool that we're now able to even talk about tracking all these things. Totally. Um, I think, honestly, we're big believers at Aura and N of One. Um, everyone's different. And frankly, I know um, while users have requested, that's why we haven't released a lot of the average data on certain people and, you know, let's say certain age cohorts. Um, we will be doing more of that in the future just so people um, have a better sense of where maybe they should be. Um, but, you know, we, I, I do think sort of N of one data, your own data is, is really what's going to help you improve um, over, you know, and cause behavior change. You know, it's sort of seeing how you react to something and, and the way your friend reacts is likely going to be different most of the time, which, which is part of the challenge for all of us sort of helping to improve our health because, you know, it's different things, you know, different strokes for different folks. Um, and, and we do see this from our own data. Um, I mean, one example is actually blue light blocking glasses. While it helps most people, uh, for sure, we did find we have found cohorts um, of certain users where actually they're not as light sensitive and they tend to release melatonin um, just okay. Um, you know, I, I wish I was one of those persons. I'm, I'm not. So, but you know, I think honestly, the more and more we start to find out with data what things are working for certain types of people, uh, the smarter and smarter we're going to be as a society. And exactly as you said, taking health back into our own hands. I love it. And as we start to wrap up, I can't believe this hour has flown by already. Um, but I'd love to ask if there's any advice or pieces of advice that you feel like you wish you could share far and wide or that's misunderstood specifically in your area of research. Yeah. I mean, I think, frankly, the biggest thing I'd like to share is like it's about sort of where we were just what we were just talking about. It's, it's about what works for you. Not everything is going to work for everyone. Um, people are at different points in their lives. Um, you know, my girlfriend has Lyme disease. Her HRV is lower than mine will be, and it's really frustrating for her. Um, and, you know, I think in the beginning, she was just comparing it to mine a lot. And, you know, I think that's sort of not the right approach because um, it can often lead to frustration. I think the key is to sort of learn what works for you um, and be able to use things like Aura and other devices and other things, other tracking apps out there to really understand and have a more holistic p picture and, and look inwards, right? Um, like I was sort of saying, I, I think in today's modern society is, you know, and I'm a big believer in technology, obviously, but it definitely has had its downfalls. And so, you know, I think we're more hyperconnected um, as a result, which is great. But at the same time, we're sort of being, you know, pulled in 10 different directions every hour. Um, and I think, honestly, that that doesn't give us much time to think about ourselves, look inward, um, you know, and reflect. And that's frankly one of the big things behind our eyes. We wanted to make sort of the invisible visible again, right, of what's happening inside your body and mind and be able to show and look at some data so people can start to understand. And we're going to make that easier um, in the app experience over time. We know probably your audience and, you know, other people out there that are biohackers are pretty sophisticated and know how to understand this data. But frankly, my mom or my dad, you know, they don't. And so we are aware that we need to make this sort of more accessible for the masses. But, um, you know, the big thing is, I would say, is learn what works for you. Um, you know, it's your own journey on health and, you know, um, start looking at some of this data um, on things like Aura Ring and other devices and apps out there um, to help learn because it's really all about learning um, from where we are, not from where someone else is. 
Absolutely. And lastly, is there a book that's had a big impact on your life that you would recommend? It does not have to be related to everything we've talked about. I would say uh, a really interesting book uh, that I think had a big impact on my life was um, Ishmael. Um, It's by Daniel Quinn. The book is actually, it's about a talking gorilla, um, (laughs) which is sort of insane concept to begin with, but it's extremely well written. And, you know, this gorilla ends up conversing with this human and they end up sort of talking about a lot of issues just in life as a whole. It's had a big impact on me because I think one of the things they talk about is sort of first order change and second order change. And it's the idea of sort of, you have to be in a place of health and even wealth yourself before you start embarking and enable to others. Um, and it sort of talks about in, in, in this journey of trying to help other people, um, how sometimes we actually hurt them, you know, and I think some of the idioms come back to, you know, some of the ideas of, you know, sort of giving a man a fish versus teaching a man how to fish. Um, you know, the same sort of concept with sort of first order change and second order change. It's a really fun book. Um, I think it's really easy to read and it's something sort of atypical, um, you know, that you won't hear from, I think, most entrepreneurs talking about sort of, you know, business books or, you know, some book, um, you know, as far as just about sleep. Um, I will say that one other book I really, really love and I think uh, someone who do- has done it really, really well is, um, you know, Why We Sleep um, by Matt Walker. You know, uh, he, he runs Berkeley's Sleep Lab and I think he put sort of probably the best and easiest book to read on all the different things and, you know, fascinating things that happen to our body and our mind when we sleep. So if you want to dive further, I'd recommend that. But if you're looking for something just to, uh, you know, maybe a what might seem like a step off the beaten path, I'd, I'd definitely check out Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. Those are both new recommendations. I've added them both to my list. Thank you so much. And um, for any of you guys who are listening, I definitely recommend trying out the Aura Ring because like I said, I am shocked how much I've integrated it into my life and how much data it gives me. And there will be a link in the show notes, of course, but you can also just go to AuraRing.com. That's O-U-R-A, ring.com, and use the discount code wellnessmama. And um, Harpreet, thank you so much. I know it's busy to run a company and all the things that you have on your plate. And I really appreciate you being here and sharing the research and the data with us. Katie, thank you for having me. And honestly, thank you for everything that you've done. Um, I think it's people like you, uh, frankly, and others that are helping share all the information they've learned, making it easy and access, um, you know, free for a lot of it to get and, and, you know, accessible in the forms of podcasts and blogs and social um, for people to help learn, you know, continue learning about themselves. Um, We're all on this journey together. And it's people like you that, frankly, make it a lot easier. Thank you. Yeah. And people like everyone listening, thank you guys for listening. People who care about their health and are willing to make changes and um, take control of their own health. You guys make our jobs awesome and we appreciate you and we appreciate your time and listening. And I hope to see all of you guys next time on the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.